All right, so we are week three. Um, so let's kind of make sure we situate ourselves. Uh, of course, we have our first unit test next week, um, and that's a light week for us because that's all we have. So normally we'll have a we'll have lecture after class, but next week is the exception. So um, next week when you finish your tests, you're you're done for the day, um, at least for this class. Um, that test will be again at the beginning of, of class, so it'll be at two o'clock. One hour, fifty multiple choice questions. It'll be a bubble sheet. You guys done any of those yet? You're familiar with them. If not, we'll walk through it. It's pretty straightforward. Um, so that's that. Um, the test next week is on units one and two, so the stuff that we've already covered. So the organization intro uh, and uh, chemistry. So we're going to cover uh, microbiology today, um, but not, nothing that's uh, in today's lecture will show up on next week's test. This will be tested on, uh, on test two, which is not until March 11th. So I know it's a ways away. Uh, it's just the way that things kind of kind of work out. All right. Uh, <clears throat> so your assignments, I'll get your, your assignment one. I'll get your assignments back to you uh, by next week. I'll probably give it to you um, when you hand in your test. And then, of course, assignment two is coming up. Uh, two parts to that. So assignment two it will be available on Blackboard um, basically after class, after you've done your test uh, next week. So on it, there will be instructions. Make sure you read them, follow them carefully. Uh, and then each of you will, be, will have been assigned a disorder to, uh, that you're responsible for uh, as your topic for, uh, for that assignment. So if you have any questions, there, uh, make sure you email me. Uh, we will see each other once in class before it's due. So if you, know, you start working on it and, and you get a little stuck, then we can talk about it. Um, and then it's due. Uh, that one's an online submission, so I'll have you um, submit it. I'll, I'll give you the instructions of how to do that. I'll have you submit it to me either through Blackboard uh, or um, or by email. Uh, I'll let you know um, by 11 a.m. on February 12th. Uh, and then, again, I will take them all, compile them, and then uh, send them all back to you at some point. And you'll be responsible for doing an assignment on your topic on February 19th. So that's the only thing we're doing that day. Um, for the, the, the assignments, as you'll see, the first part, the, the written component, is a one-pager. Uh, so use pictures, make it pretty, that kind of stuff, um, but no more than one page. The part for the assignment, it can be entirely different. You can, if you want to get up here and, um, and just use that one-page file, you can. If you want to, um, if you want to do a, a short little PowerPoint presentation, that would be totally fine as well if you feel that's a better way to present your information to a small group. All right? Okay, just, you'll read all the instructions. It'll be available uh, next week after the test. So um, <clears throat> I know that we haven't done cells yet. Cells is our, our next units uh, that we'll cover uh, two weeks from now. Um, so this might, in some parts, feel a touch backwards, um, but it just uh, scheduling-wise, it worked out best to do microbiology now. So in the cell unit, we'll, we'll look at what our human cells look like, so uh, what are called eukaryotic cells that have a nucleus and, and, a, and a membrane but no cell wall, uh, and learn kind of a lot of the organelles and the other workings inside the cell. Um, so that'll be next. Um, so there may be some terms that come up today that kind of use those words as comparison. Um, uh, we haven't, you're, it's not, it's not, um, if there's something you don't recognize from that end, then it's okay uh, because we haven't covered that yet. All right. 
So let's get into it. Okay? When we talk about microbiology, what we're really talking about is microorganisms, so things that you need a microscope to see. So small life forms. And mostly when we talk about microorganisms, we're usually discussing bacteria, fungi, protozoa, and then a few others. So we're going to throw a few others in into that today. And one uh, is uh, our viruses. So we're going to discuss viruses because they are a common cause of infections and some diseases. Uh, however, that one is in italics there, you'll notice, because viruses, strictly speaking, although they are microscopic, of course, are not forms of life. They don't fit the definition of a, of a life form because they're not cellular. They don't, they don't have a cell. Um, they don't have inner workings and organelles and metabolism, things like that. They just have basically a protective outer shell and genetic material, either DNA or RNA. And as you'll see, viruses do their work by um, by injecting their DNA or RNA into a host cell and having it do the work for it. So they are effectively non-living parasites. But we'll, we'll talk about them anyway. Okay? So our, our microorganisms, again, um, the first term we should, we should make sure that we are clear on is pathogenic versus non-pathogenic. So pathogenic means can it cause disease? So can it cause an infection? All right. Um, now, there are many, 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 many microorganisms that are, uh, that are pathogenic, and there are many, many, many organisms that are non-pathogenic. So they're, um, they fit the bill. They are, say, bacteria or fungi or protozoa or whatever that um, may be in our environment, may even be living on us or in us, but don't cause disease, don't cause infection. So don't take away um, from this kind of discussion that all bacteria is bad because it's most certainly not. In fact, we, uh, we have what's called a normal flora. So we have a, a whole host of bacterial cells that live on and in us that are not only not pathogenic, but quite beneficial, okay? Um, it's escaping me the actual number of it right now, but the number of cells that's, that make up your body is estimated to be in the, in the trillions, okay? So if you think all the cells that make up your body, this, the bacterial cells in your gut, it's estimated that it's about 10 times the number of cells that you have making up your body. And that, that math works because bacterial cells are usually much smaller than our, our, our regular somatic cells. But, um, but that, sh that number should indicate something to you, right? There's no, there's no way that there's 10 times as many bacterial cells in our gut as there are cells that make up our entire body if it's not for a good reason. And it's actually to the point now where our, our gut flora, the bacteria and organisms that live in our gut normally, we know they're important. Um, we can't honestly say that we understand all of it and how it works and everything that it does, but we know that if you mess with it, then disease process can occur uh, pretty significantly. So, um, so it's almost even starting to be called its own organ system because uh, it kind of acts that way. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> Let's talk about pathogens. So <laughs> pathogenic, again, a, a pathogen is an organism that can cause a disease or infection. They are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Um, they are all around us all the time. Um, and actually, you have a normal, uh, you have a normal uh, bacterial flora on your skin and on your mucous membranes in, the, in and around the mouth and oral cavity, too. And some of those organisms can also be pathogenic. They're around us all the time. If you were to take a swab and culture, you might find some stuff that objectively we could consider you know, pathogenic, nasty bacteria. 
but it doesn't always mean it's going to necessarily cause infection. It has to have the right set of circumstances for that to occur. <clears throat> now, um, ones that, that are pathogens that do cause disease uh, and, and, uh, and uh, have found an environment in which they can take hold and multiply um, and propagate, uh, there's a bunch of different mechanisms by which they can be spread from person to person. Uh, that could be from direct contact, as in skin to skin or mucous membrane to mucous membrane. Um, it could be airborne, so coughing, sneezing, things like that. Um, it could be uh, through blood, right? Uh, con uh, contact with contaminated blood. It could be uh, through a vector, so uh, a vector like an insect vector or animal vector. So let's say um, a common one would be, um, let's say malaria. Does anybody know what kind of organism causes malaria? Mosquitoes. Right. So, so a, a term that we need to make sure we're on the same page uh, about is uh, causative agent versus a vector. So a causative agent is the organism, the species, the specific organism that causes the disease. And you're right in that, um, in that malaria spread is related often to mosquitoes, but the mosquito is the vector. The reason that mosquitoes can spread malaria is because they have inside them a small protozoa. So it's a single-celled organism that is the causative agent of malaria that happens to get taken up by a mosquito, and that since a mosquito you know, uh, punctures the skin, can transfer it into a human. Okay, so the difference between causative agent and vector is important. Okay, what else? <laughs> so everything that's living uh, are going to be um, is going to fall within this organizational structure of one of the three major domains, um, and the domains are are, uh, are separated that way, not randomly, but because. We've divided it uh, amongst um, living organisms that have uh, similar properties within each of the, of the groups and the subgroups. And that's what makes them, although uh, similar to other life forms, uh, distinct and different. So the three domains are bacteria, archaea, which uh, are essentially a, a similar but different form of, of bacteria. Okay, and those two groups together are all single-celled organisms, and they're all considered what's called prokaryotic. They're prokaryotes. The term prokaryote means that they have no nucleus. Okay? Do these organisms have DNA? They do. They do. Right? So all living organisms are going to have DNA as their, uh, that's what we have in common, is that we have the same basic instruction manual that, um, that is used to accomplish the, the function of life. Okay? Uh, and so they all will have DNA, but the major difference in those, those two domains is neither one of them have a nucleus, so an encapsulated nucleus that contains. Yep, so in our cells, sorry? So they, even they don't have a nucleus. Right, but they still have DNA. Yeah, it just floats around. Yeah. Okay? And the, and, the, and the distinction there is that the, the, the third domain is eukaryotes. And so eukaryote is essentially the opposite of a prokaryote. And a eukaryote means that you have organisms that have a, 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 have a nucleus. Okay? And this would be that uh, drawn out. So, again, in blue over here we have bacteria and your not by no means responsible for any of this stuff. It's just a visual to, to help you wrap your head around it. In the red here we have archaea, and then all the stuff in brown is all uh, eukaryotes. So everything in brown is going to have a nucleus. Now that doesn't mean that they are all 
multicellular organisms like us. There are single cell organisms in the domain eukaryota, um, but that's the distinction that, that uh, separates them, the simple one. Um, and the, the kind of the, the way to think about this is, you know, we have our own branch on the tree of life, right? Um, here we are right here, right? We're in kingdom animalia or animals. Uh, and if you go far enough back along the tree, you're going to find a common ancestor with other organisms that are within your general group, of, uh, your vicinity on that tree of life. And if you keep going farther and farther and farther and far enough back, you'll ultimately find a common ancestor with everything else. Uh, so here we are, you know, right next to fungi and plants and uh, slime molds. All right. So, um, again, basic distinctions between prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells. By definition, the difference is the, in a prokaryote, the lack of a nucleus. So um, these, are, these terms over here, the mitochondria, the mitotubule, microtubules, the endoplasmic reticulum, ribosomes, et cetera, that's all stuff that we're going to learn in uh, the cells unit next. So don't fret about that yet. And if you've taken high school biology any time recently, it should be a breeze. Okay? It's pretty simple stuff. If not, that's okay too. We'll all get on the same playing field. Um, but this will be the nucleus in the middle here, and contained within that, you're going to have a structure called the nucleolus, and you're going to have all your DNA. So over here, we have an artist's artist depiction of a, uh, of a prokaryote. Uh, and so again, uh, that's everything in all, both these domains, bacteria and archaea. Um, and again, they do have DNA. It just is floating around freely. Uh, in the cytoplasm as opposed to encapsulated in a nucleus. Um, take note, too, of size differences. Again, the numbers you're not responsible for remembering, but if you, it just gives you a visual uh, of scale here, right? So if a eukaryotic cell on average is going to be between 10 and 100 micrometers, right? even though they're drawn the same size, uh, these guys are going to be more in the neighborhood of uh, you know, 0.1 to 10, so much, much smaller. So let's talk about bacteria first. So as I said, bacteria are prokaryotes, which means by definition they have no nucleus. Um, although beyond that, they do have a lot of other similarities with um, the with with what uh, with our cells and what we have in the, in the inner workings and what are called organelles, the stuff that that is responsible for doing the jobs of uh, of what a cell does. Um, they have metabolism; they use energy, um, so they have to uh, they have to grow and uh, divide, reproduce. They have to be able to make stuff. Um, so they have a lot of stuff that goes on. Now, when our eukaryotic human cells, right, uh, when our cells divide, when you take one parent cell and divide into two identical daughter cells, what's that uh, process called? Binary fission? Uh, nope. In our cells. It starts with an M. Mitosis, okay? Mitosis for making two identical daughter cells, meiosis for making uh, sex cells, sperm and eggs. So that we'll talk about at a in a different class. But um, bacteria have to divide as well, but because they don't have a nucleus, and the nucleus is kind of a key part of, of mitosis, it, it looks kind of similar, but, uh, but, it, but it is different. So um, they operate with uh, what's called binary fission. It kind of describes exactly what's happening. Binary means two, fission means split. So basically you take one parent bacterial cell, and they will replicate the DNA inside of it, and then divide into two identical daughter cells. And they do this rather rapidly. They're kind of famous for it. Um, they do it uh, you know, over the course of minutes in certain species. 
uh, and they will divide and then the daughter cells will divide and then their daughter cells will divide and, and that's how bacteria can start populating a, a particular space really rapidly. The next thing here on that list is one of the, one of the important distinctions between uh, bacterial cells and, and our cells, our eukaryotic cells, is that they have a cell wall. So around our cells, protecting the, the border, the outside, We will have cell membrane. We're going to talk about that in our next unit. Uh, cell membrane is mostly made up of lipids and proteins. It's selectively permeable, which means some things can get through it and some things can't. Now, bacteria have that same cell membrane or a similar cell membrane, okay? But they also have this cell wall around it. So it's a second layer of protection, and that we don't have. Okay. Other organisms will have similar structures. Plants have cell walls. Um, uh, fungi have cell walls. They're chemically different, but they are this protective structure around the outside. Okay. So we don't have that, but bacteria do. Um, although bacteria can often thrive in certain environments, especially if they're in and around living tissue, like inside a human, for example, um, they don't, out of necessity, need other living tissues in order to survive, as long as they can get what they need uh, to live. They, they're, not, they're not, strictly speaking, parasitic. And there's all sorts of different sizes and shapes of bacteria. Uh, we're going to explore what a couple of those look like shortly. Um, so these are all some of the things that you might find uh, that, that uh, uh, characterize a bacterial cell. Um, we'll come back to this picture or something like it. Um, I don't know what that is. Hopefully it goes away. Uh, we'll come back to that. We're going to see those, those items in a list uh, next. OK, good. OK, so this is just showing you binary fission. Uh, again, the real simple version, all I need you to know is that take, you take one parent cell, and it divides into two identical daughter cells. That's it. So let's talk about how we can classify some bacteria. The first is by shape. So when you when you um, when you hear names of bacterial species, some of the words, or the roots of the words that you'll see are these. Uh, and it describes what it is that they look like under a microscope. So uh, bacillus, or plural bacilli, are bacteria that are rod-shaped. So like this, okay? Um, cocci, or a singular coccus, those are spherical, okay, so they're round. And then you have a classification called spirochetes, uh, which is uh, essentially a couple things. It basically means uh, ones that look like a spiral shape and one look, ones that look kind of wiggly shaped. All right. Now, there are other ways you can classify them as based on their visual appearance as well because, or based on the fact that some uh, uh, certain bacteria will not exist uh, individually, but they'll exist in groups clumped together. So that's where we get the prefixes diplo, which means two, or staphylo, which means a cluster, or strepto, which implies a chain. And in this, these examples, it's all referring to uh, cocci, so the spherical bacteria. So you can see here, right, if this is, these are cocci, right, round bacteria, these are diplococci. So it's two bacteria, two spherical bacteria operating as one unit, stuck together. These are staphylococci. You may have heard of a staph infection. Okay, when you, someone says they have a staph infection, that's what they're referring to. It's a short form for what is implied to, be, to mean staphylococcus. 
right? Uh, and this is a streptococcus. Okay, so I'm sure you've heard of a strep infection, or a strep throat. When someone has strep throat, if you if you swab that the throat, right, and get a culture and look at it under a microscope, it's going to look like that. It's going to look like chains of round bacteria that are called streptococci. And then within that category of streptococci, you have a whole host of different species and variants. Okay, and it's important to be able to know these things because. Um, uh, selection of, of appropriate medications is going to be dependent on identification of what species is causing the infection. Make sense? Okay. So here's a few examples of stuff under microscope. All right. You've got some cocci over here. Uh, what, what would these be? So if these are cocci, round, these would be, what are the rod-shaped ones called? I know it's new. Um, yep, perfect. It'll be bacilli, yep. Or one of them by itself would be a bacillus, yep. And then these guys here, they're kind of wiggly shaped. Those would be spirochetes. Okay, so this is the kind of the different appearances they can have under, under microscope. Okay, so caucus, bacillus, spirulus. Very good. Okay. Um, here's some other ways, that, uh, things that we can, uh, ways that we can look at bacteria, and these are all ima different images of the same type of bacteria. So we're gonna we're gonna see in a couple minutes what the term gram-negative means. So don't concern yourself with that too much yet. All right. But um, we have essentially th varying uh, um, uh, um, varying degrees of uh, detail that we can see based on what kind of imaging we're doing. So this over here on the far right, this is your kind of typical uh, way you look at, a, uh, at bacteria, right? So your kind of typical light microscope. Um, no, the resolution is not terribly great. The zoom is, you know, it's okay. It's not great. You can tell from that image that they are bacilli, right? You can tell that, that they are rod-shaped bacteria. Uh, and then over here we have varying uh, degrees of, of um, detail with different with different views. So on the left here, you have an electron micrograph, still in 2D. Here you can, you can see the detail. You can see that these bacteria have flagelli. Okay? We'll see what those mean, but little tail-shaped uh, uh, mechanisms. And then over here, we can see a more 3D image with a scanning electron micrograph. So risk, this really depends on um, how expensive the equipment you have available in your lab is. All right, so let's learn some more stuff about what makes bacteria unique in their structure. I mentioned that they have a cell wall, and that's, that would be the, the, the barrier around the outside of the membrane that I drew here in blue. Um, we don't have those. But not all bacterial cell walls are the same. They can vary enormously in their chemical composition. And some of those variations are, are part of how we can start to classify some bacteria. And one of the simplest ways we can do that is uh, through a method that is how we actually can see them under uh, a light microscope, or your standard microscope, um, by essentially taking a sample and then applying a stain. Okay, so this procedure is called gram staining. And basically, the way gram staining works is you first apply what's a purple stain to the slide. And then any bacteria that is what's called gram positive, able to take up that purple stain, will do so. And then you can see them under the microscope because the cell walls have absorbed some of that purple stain and now it looks like you have a bunch of purple bacteria on your slide. Okay? But not all bacteria 
are gram positive, right? Um, the, some need another way to be identified. So you apply a second stain. It's called a counter stain, and it's pink. So that second pink stain, there will be bacteria that don't take up the purple, but that will take up that pink stain. Uh, and so they are what's called gram negative. Now, this over here, if you look at this previous slide, these bacilli are gram positive or gram negative? They're pink, so it means they are gram negative. All right, so the, the, the gram positive means they would look purple. All right, so again, that's, that's fine. It's all well and good. Um, but what it tells us is that they have some chemical similarities. So, so gram-positive organisms will have some similarities in how their cell wall is made up. That's the reason why they all took up that stain. And the same thing with gram-negative organisms. They have some chemical similarities in that, in that wall. And the gram-positive and gram-negative organisms have differences between each other, clearly. So we'll see some of the implications of that uh, in a little bit. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, again, cell, the bacteria will have cell membranes uh, just like we do. That's the in inner black circle on this uh, on the board here. Let's look at that. Okay, so we have on the left a gram-positive sample, so they're stained purple, and on the right you have gram-negative bacteria. Okay. Uh, the, the names don't matter for us right now. On the left here, you have Staph aureus, Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, do you see why it's called Staphylococcus? Right? It's spherical bacteria, the round ones, in clusters. Okay. And over here, we have Strep pneumo, okay? Streptococcus pneumonia. Um, and so uh, these bigger cells here, those aren't bacteria, those are uh, cells of the immune system, those are white blood cells. These guys in here, the little ones, that's strep pneumo. Okay, and they're gram-negative because they look more pink. Now, <clears throat> what else will you see in, uh, in bacteria? Well, we have, in, in all bacteria, you're going to have these two protective layers, cell membrane uh, uh, circled by a cell wall. In some types of bacteria, there will even be another layer outside of that. Okay. It's an extra layer of protection. It's either called a capsule or a slime layer, depending on the, the makeup of it. So again, not all bacteria will have this, just some, and it's just a, a further barrier, something else that can protect it against, um, against its environment, make it a little more robust. All right. Some bacteria, but not all, will have flagella. Um, so we saw a picture of a flagella earlier. Um, this is, all right, flagella right here, this long black thing, it's effectively a tail. So it's got um, contractile proteins that are, really allowed, that are able to, to create force uh, and essentially it, it whips like a tail and it's for motility. So as a tail would, it essentially moves and it allows it to more easily move uh, through its environment, especially in a, in a fluid. Um, the next thing are uh, pili or fimbria. Um, so those are a little bit strange. They have a couple different uh, uh, jobs. Okay, the basic explanation here: the fimbria. Fimbria means fingers. Uh, so they are kind of these finger, smaller finger-like projections. They're not as big as a flagella. They stick off the outside, you know, uh, the outside of a bacteria, and they're primarily for adhesion, which means they allow the bacteria to stick to stuff. So ba a bacteria that have more fimbria 
are better able to survive in certain environments because they're able to adhere to tissue and stick somewhere and not be washed away and killed. Okay? So all these types of things are adaptations that have in some way or another given the bacteria a competitive advantage in certain environments. Now, um, I skipped something here. I skipped the point about uh, transfer of DNA to another bacterium. I did that intentionally. Uh, we're going to come back to that in, uh, in two minutes. So right now, Fimbria are for adhesion, stickiness. All right. We know, again, I've repeated myself a bunch, bacteria have that cell membrane. It's selectively permeable, so some things can get through it and some things cannot. Now, inside of the, the cell membrane, so inside the innermost barrier, inside the black here, you have the cytoplasm. We have cytoplasm too, right? It's mostly made up of water. So it's going to be water-based plus all the other stuff that, I that is uh, necessary for that bacteria to live is all going to be found in the cytoplasm. So chemicals and enzymes and electrolytes and all your organelles and all that stuff is all found in the cytoplasm. Now, as I said earlier, in human cells, in our eukaryotic cells, we have DNA. It's organized into chromosomes. Um, the genetics unit is our last unit of the semester, so I don't expect you to have to know this yet. But does anybody know how many pairs of chromosomes human cells have? 46. Good, so 23 pairs, so 46. Good, very good. Uh, you would have got 23 from mom and 23 from dad, which gives you 23 pairs or 46 chromosomes. Good. Uh, and again, we'll talk about that in about 10 weeks. Um, or maybe sooner. Uh, inside bacteria, they also, sorry, bacteria also have DNA, as I mentioned earlier, but they don't have uh, DNA organized into chrom many chromosomes like we do. They usually have what you can technically call one chromosome, which is basically just one big long strand of DNA. All right. Now, what they, sorry, they have ribosomes as well. Um, again, I know we haven't covered this yet, but does anybody know what ribosomes do? Ribosomes make proteins. Okay, so that's the whole point of, uh, I mean, what DNA effectively does is it's the code, it's the blueprint uh, for uh, how and what we build in, with ribosomes, with the proteins that a cell can make. And we'll, again, we'll talk about that next week, or in the next unit, sorry. Uh, so, so bacteria are metabolically active. They build stuff. They're living organisms. They have ribosomes as well. They build proteins. Um, something the bacteria have that we do not is the next thing, plasmids, okay? So plasmids are kind of like this. If, if this is a big, long strand of bacterial DNA, that's the bulk of its genetic information. That's how it's found. Uh, bacteria also have sometimes little snippets. They're little uh, round, kind of just very short segments of DNA that usually exist as like a little, round little fragment. Um, again, that's something that we don't have. They're considered, it's considered non-chromosomal, which means it's not part of this big, long main strand of DNA. Now, that is interesting because um, that can actually be transferred from one bacteria to another, and it's a strange process that we don't have at all. When you talk about cells um, uh, passing along their genetic information, right? If you have a cell, right? parent cell that, oops, it's going to divide into two identical daughter cells. When that process happens, 
um, that parent cell has to take all of its DNA, it has to double it, and then split it in half so that each one of those daughter cells eventually ends up with the exact DNA the parent cell had. That's called vertical transmission, right? Vertical from one generation to the next. Okay? And then these things would do the same, right? And this is still vertical transmission to the next generation, and so on and so forth. Okay? Plasmids can be transmitted what's called horizontally. All right, so horizontal transmission basically means that you have two living bacteria. They can connect with one another, and not the main strand, but these little plasmids can actually be exchanged from one bacteria to another. Okay, and that's something that's unique and we definitely don't do with our cells. Now the relevance here is that the way that they do this is through a little structure that connects them kind of like a pipeline, I guess. All right, and that structure is the pili. So the pili uh, is very, very similar to the fimbria. Effectively, it's the same thing. And I said earlier that they are more for adhesion. They're for sticking to things. But the real structure of them, how they're built, is that if you look at them closely, they look more like a drinking straw. So they're hollow. And so they can, if they connect, they adhere to another bacterium, these tiny little plasmid fragments can be exchanged from one bacteria to another. Okay? Um, and that's an interesting process that, uh, that, uh, that allows bacteria to evolve a little more rapidly, potentially, because they can acquire uh, completely new DNA from a different uh, bacterium, potentially even from a different species, uh, and, uh, and rapidly acquire new traits and new DNA that they can use for other things. So that could be completely innocuous and mean nothing, or it could mean that maybe a bacteria acquires a new resistance to an antibiotic or something like that. So that becomes very, very relevant. Okay, what else? Um, bacteria can sometimes create toxins. So toxins are essentially um, substances that the bacteria will make uh, that are released into their environment that can cause local damage. And the advantage to this is that um, if bacteria is a, if bacteria can cause damage to the environment that they're in, especially if they're in and around a living host, like a human, um, then, uh, then the, the, their creation of damage and the inflammation that's going to cause and the fluid that will come to that area actually makes it easier for those bacteria to thrive. Okay, so it's advantageous to them to cause damage to their local environment. Um, now there are differences. There are two basic kinds of toxins, exotoxins and endotoxins. Exo means out, right? And endo means within. So exotoxins are kind of what you would probably visualize when you first think of a bacteria makes a toxin and releases it. That's what happens. It produces it and then it releases it to the environment and then it does its thing. Endotoxins are not released into the environment. Endotoxins are made by the bacteria and then embedded within their cell wall. Okay? Uh, and this particularly happens in, uh, or it's, it's notorious in um, gram negative bacteria. So those ones that stain pink uh, uh, under microscope. And the implication is um, that that can be problematic for us as a host uh, because. Um, 
you could say have a bacterial infection and then you kill it, right? You, your immune system or you take antibiotics or you, know, you wipe out a whole bunch of these bacteria all at once. But then as they're dying, being broken open and broken down, they can release a whole bunch of uh, endotoxins into the environment and cause further problems, including um, <coughs> a type of shock, which basically means you can't deliver enough blood to the body. And that's because some of those toxins can uh, uh, can affect our blood vessels and make the make our blood pressure drop. Okay, we don't have to go into too much more detail there. Enzymes, kind of similar. Uh, enzymes can be released by by bacteria again uh, for the purpose of of causing local damage uh, and and spreading their ability to uh, to to spread and multiply. Any questions yet? All right, uh, spores. Okay, so spores are something else that bac some bacteria can do, not all. Um, a spore is basically, um, it's a uh, balled up, protected, smaller, dormant version of a bacteria. And it's a survival mechanism that some bacteria can employ. Um, and they'll basically, they will release spores that are not active. So spores aren't technically really um, uh, uh, active um, while they're in that state, but they can become reactivated if the environment suits it. Uh, and so a situation where, for example, spores can lie dormant in, you know, on surfaces or in the soil or whatever, and then if, they're, and if we pick them up somehow, they get into our body where it's nice and warm and moist and, and good environment for bacteria to grow, they can become reactivated and cause a subsequent infection. So these kinds of things are, are the reason why um, you know, there's special techniques for um, sterilization of reusable equipment in, you know, in healthcare settings, for example. Um, spores are notoriously hard to kill, uh, and uh, that's kind of what's special about them, right? That's what allows them to survive longer than a typical living bacterial cell. Um, spores can be resistant to, uh, you know, relatively high heat, uh, and even some of our chemical disinfectants sometimes might not be able to kill a spore where they would kill a living bacterial cell. And that's a problem uh, because you can maybe think that you've cleaned an instrument and you haven't fully sterilized it. So this is why we have uh, specialized things like autoclaves uh, to uh, use intense high heat and pressure and steam to uh, completely eradicate any living organism including, cell, uh, including spores from a reusable instrument. All right. <clears throat> um, yeah, that'll work. Uh, again, normal resident flora. Uh, we have this, lots of us, many, many, many trillions of these uh, on and, and in your body at any given time. Um, it's all through your gut, so basically through the entirety of the, well, not the entirety, a good chunk of the GI tract. It's on your skin. If you were to look at the surface of your skin with a microscope, you'd be crawling with bacteria. Um, don't let that bother you. It's totally normal. Uh, and also inside, basically any, any part of your body that's exposed to the outside world. So anywhere you have mucous membranes. So in the mouth, in the nose, in the vagina, the urethra, the ears, places like that. Okay, and again, we don't fully understand all of the ramifications uh, of what our flora does, um, but we, we happen to know that it's important. <clears throat> okay, 
the things we do know about it uh, is that it can be um, important for uh, helping our immune system, especially in the gut. Um, it can prevent growth of harmful bacteria. So basically, um, if good, I'm going to use the term good bacteria in quotes, if the good bacteria is occupying space, right, whether it's on the skin or in the gut, then there's less room for the bad bacteria to live and divide. Um, in the gut, it can actually, the, the bacteria, especially in the, in the colon, can actually produce some vitamins. Um, so the, it's been shown that um, certain B vitamins uh, and vitamin K can be produced outright by bacteria in our gut that we can absorb and use. Um, it is, uh, there, uh, the presence of the bacteria by itself, especially in our gut, is a stimulus to maintain the growth uh, and development of the intestinal cells uh, and hence keep that healthy barrier that's going to protect us against everything else that we swallow. Okay? Uh, and then in some cases, certain bacteria can be involved in the fermentation process, uh, so essentially um, furthering the breakdown of, of foodstuffs as it goes through the, the gut uh, and becomes stool. <laughs> there are some bacteria that can, uh, that can uh, turn carbohydrates uh, into short-chain fatty acids, uh, and those are things that are healthy for our gut and, and very, very useful. Uh, they're also healthy for the brain, uh, and there's some really interesting links between gut health and brain health. Um, there's some very uh, interesting, although again, admittedly, to not completely understood uh, mechanisms and links between gut health and, and things like uh, depression and anxiety. Um, so it's a really interesting connection that we have some ideas um, uh, what it has to do with, but uh, and some of those ideas have to do with our, our flora, but not fully understood yet. Okay. All right. Um, there also seems to be a link between uh, having a good, healthy intestinal bacterial flora uh, and prevention of certain types of cancer, including uh, colon cancer, breast cancer, and prostate. So really, really important stuff. Uh, we, of course, use bacteria for a bunch of other reasons, right? Um, of course, we just talked about digestion. Um, we use it in food production. I mean, if you've ever eaten yogurt or cheese, that's used bacterial cultures to modify milk to create something different. Uh, we use it in uh, industry for making things like um, ethanol, for example. We can use bacteria to convert uh, energy sources into alcohol. Uh, also, into uh, or also, we use them to produce and manufacture, mass-produce antibiotics. Okay? By definition, um, we will sometimes kind of off the cuff uh, interchangeably use the term antimicrobial or anti or antibacterial and antibiotic. Technically speaking, that's not accurate. Um, an antibiotic means that it is a drug that can kill bacteria, but it's it's something that was originally have come from another bacteria. So we've harvested those bacteria and, and used them to our advantage to, uh, to produce a particular substance. Okay. Um, in our environment, of course, uh, we know that they're super important for decomposition uh, and creation of good, healthy soil. Um, we can kind of use that to our advantage 
uh, and uh, there's, there's all sorts of exploration into using bacteria to break down um, things like garbage. Uh, we were kind of exploring the possibilities of certain types of bacteria being able to break down plastics, for example, which right now we have no good way of breaking down in the environment, at least not for a very, very long time. And uh, we've known for a long time that bacteria uh, are important, again, for the environment for uh, introducing nitrogen from the air back into the soil, which is critical for, for soil health. Okay, so, and those are the good kinds of bacteria. Um, there are, of course, lots of bacteria that you'll, you'll learn about eventually that, that are pathogenic. Um, you're not responsible. I'm going to go through a bunch. You're not responsible for remembering any of these. I'm just going to give you kind of an introduction, and you may have you may be familiar with some of these already. Um, Staph aureus, okay? Um, Staph, uh, Staphylococcus aureus, we saw that on a picture earlier. Um, it looks like um, clusters of round bacteria. Now, Staph aureus is a, is a bacteria that will commonly cause infections, especially in, uh, superficially in the skin. And Staph aureus does get a lot of uh, recognition or press because um, as much as it is a and historically has been a common uh, skin infection cause. Um, it's also developed and evolved to be resistant to a lot of the, um, or at least certain strains of them have been developed to be resistant to some of the back, or some of the antibiotics that we have traditionally used to kill them. So um, there are essentially um, uh, the the family of, of drugs, the, the psyllins, right? There are, there have been uh, staph bacteria that uh, that have evolved to be uh, resistant to penicillin. So we throw something heavier at it. Okay, so we use methicillin, and now there are drugs that have been uh, that are, have been found to be resistant to methicillin, and we call that MRSA, methicillin resistant staph aureus. If you've ever been to the hospital, you check in and they ask you, have you ever had you know this, this, or that? One of those ones on the list is going to superbugs is going to be MRSA, okay? Because it's very challenging to kill. Um, most typically, if you have a, a bacteria like MRSA that is resistant to methicillin, then they'll throw an even more powerful drug at us, like vancomycin, which we don't want to use unless we absolutely have to. There have been bacteria found now that are resistant to vancomycin, and this is kind of emerging as uh, it's predicted to be one of the um, one of the most important public health issues in the coming years. Uh, is basically it becomes an arms race, effectively, where we're chasing constantly chasing uh, the bacteria that are resistant to the drugs that we have now, uh, and they're consistently evolving to be resistant to the best we have, and it will continue to happen perpetually. Um, there are drug, there are there are um, bacteria and pathogenic bacteria out there that are multi-drug resistant, that that don't respond to any combinations of drugs that we have uh, available, and that's dangerous, right? It means you can't you can't cure it. Um, for example, there are um, multiple drug-resistant forms of tuberculosis, so a, a lung infection uh, that we don't see terribly commonly here. But um, you'd be surprised at how uh, common it actually is if you look at the global population. It's actually estimated that up to a quarter of people worldwide have been infected with, with tuberculosis at some point. Just the bulk of those cases tend to be in developing countries. So we don't really often think of that, but it's a huge problem. Um, and TB in particular is, uh, you know, it's hard to kill. It takes a long time. It takes often multiple drugs, and that's kind of the perfect 
storm to develop or for bacteria to evolve to become multi-drug resistant. And those kinds of things are really, really problematic. Um, <clears throat> this is something else you might see on that list of superbugs if you check into the hospital. VRE, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus. Uh, so that's an enterococcus, which is a bacteria that tends to affect the, uh, the GI tract, the gut. So, you know, significant diarrhea and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but it's resistant to vancomycin. So it's, it's uh, really, really, really hard to kill. Uh, and it can, uh, it can be very problematic, especially if it gets, starts to get spread in, a, in a, a setting like a hospital. We have a whole bunch of people all in the same environment and that potentially are vulnerable to infection. Some of these you probably recognize, right? They're STIs, sexually transmitted infections. You have chlamydia, trachomatis. Again, the, people usually call it chlamydia, right? Or Neisseria gonorrhea. It's usually called gonorrhea. Um, but these names here are the full species name of those bacteria. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll need to belabor that, but... Just recognize them. Uh, Streptococcus pyogenes. Again, it's a Streptococcus pyogenes. It means it's the certain species of Streptococcus. Um, this one uh, is what typically causes uh, strep throat, or one of the causes of strep throat. So um, that's something that, of course, you could run into when you're talking about the uh, the uh, um, infections of the oral cavity and the pharynx. Um, e. coli, right? E. coli. I'm certain you've heard of. It's it's uh, common in stool, uh, and it is a, uh, a bacteria that tends to infect the GI tract, the gut. Uh, I'll spoil the fun here. Um, when you tend to see, when, you, when, tend, when you're talking about infections of the stomach and infections of the, the gut, the GI tract, nine times out of 10, uh, the way that that was acquired was fecal contamination of food or water because these things, these bacteria are found in stool and feces, whether that's of an animal or a human. Uh, I'll let you imagine how that can possibly happen. Um, but I mean, in places where there's you know, poor access to sanitation, it's really easy for drinking water, for example, to get contaminated. Uh, but this, we're not immune to this either, right? This happens all the time. Somebody is prepping food and, uh, and doesn't wash their hands properly after they go to the bathroom, that bacteria gets in the food, um, maybe it stays at the wrong temperature for a while, multiplies, and that's all it takes. Right? And that could be at home, uh, or that could be uh, in a restaurant. Right? And then a whole bunch of people, everybody that eats the salad on that day gets sick, or you know, whatever the case is. Um, that's good enough. Okay. Uh, you've probably heard of salmonella, right? Salmonella, another bacteria that can cause food poisoning. Uh, Campylobacter. Campylobacter is um, the most common cause of food poisoning. Uh, again, it's um, uh, contamination of the, of, the, of the food or water. Uh, usually, if it's, it's particularly prevalent in stuff that's allowed to sit under heat lamps for a while. So it sits at just the right temperature to allow bacteria to multiply for a while. Food sits, it's not eaten right away. Um, it's not hot enough to kill it, but it's not, you know, it's not cold enough to kill it. It's just right um, and that kind of stuff. Okay, I mentioned uh, this one here, tuberculosis. The full name is Mycobacterium tuberculosis. It's an infection of the respiratory system. Um, again, not terribly common here, but, but quite common worldwide. It's usually one of one of the two top causes of, uh, of death 
by infectious disease worldwide, that and HIV. So very, very common. Um, this one you've probably heard of, all right, Clostridium tetani, that causes tetanus. All right, what is the, what is, um, not the infection, but the, the term tetanus, does anybody know what that means? As it relates to the, to the muscular, muscular system? What does it mean? Oh, no. <laughs> so that's like, I think, the muscles go into spasm? Yeah. Yeah. So the, so the clostridium tetani, um, it, the, um, the toxins that are created by this bacteria, uh, they affect the, um, the neuromuscular system, and they create what's called tetanus. So in the infection is called tetanus. We call it that. But, uh, but tetanus by itself, it literally means uncontrolled cumulative muscle spasm. And so basically you get involuntary spasm of muscles. Um, it usually starts in small muscles and is actually often in the face, which is why it's sometimes called lockjaw, because it affects the muscles of mastication and, and makes the muscles spasm. Uh, it can actually make the muscles spasm so hard that you can break your own jaw by the contraction of the muscles. Um, so that in and of itself is obviously a problem. But um, if that kind of spasm is allowed to continue and, and affects things like the respiratory system, stop breathing, and it can be fatal. Okay, so let's talk about opportunistic infections. Okay, so opportunistic infections means that you have organisms like bacteria that can cause infection, disease, but not under normal circumstances. Okay, um, so maybe you have bacteria that's living on your skin that is relatively non pathogenic uh, unless it gets the right opportunity, and that could be, for example, um, there's decreased resistance. So um, you have a cut, right? So you, get a, you, get a, you cut your skin, uh, and now the skin, which is the, the primary first line of defense against bacteria from the environment, it's a physical barrier, is breached, and it allows what's normally non-pathogenic bacteria to get into the body and multiply and create an opportunistic infection. This is, of course, why when you cut yourself, what's the first thing you're supposed to do? Wash it, soap and water, clean it out, okay? Because of this exact reason. And then you cover it and protect it. Um, same thing can happen, uh, for example, in the gut, right? Um, if, you, if you wipe out uh, a number, uh, if you normally have good gut flora, and for some reason you have diarrhea, or you take antibiotics for a while, or something else that wipes out a bunch of your gut flora, it creates an environment that is more easy for bacteria to spread and multiply and create an opportunistic infection, even if they wouldn't otherwise normally do that. Okay, I've been using the example bacteria a lot, but, um, but you can have other organisms that can be opportunistic as well. Um, viruses, fungi, parasites can be just about anything. All right. Usually happens when there is impairment of the immune system. So either the immune system and the cells of the immune system are not functioning properly, uh, and that could be if the person is taking immunosuppressant meds, if they have a disease that suppresses their immune system, like AIDS, uh, if they are getting older, the immune system starts to not work as well, uh, if they're otherwise ill or sick or stressed or very tired. I mean, think about when you tend to get sick, right? You most often get sick when you're already tired and stressed. Uh, you're more vulnerable to it because your immune system is relatively compromised for the time being. Okay? Malnourished, same deal. Cancer patients who are taking immunosuppressant meds or, or, or undergoing therapy that's, that's 
uh, damaging their bone marrow and subsequently their immune system. So the common theme there is immunosuppression. Okay, uh, kind of briefly mentioned this uh, earlier, uh, but some bacteria uh, can develop antibiotic resistance. Um, this is part of uh, it's part of the the normal kind of evolution and natural selection of uh, of organisms like bacteria, right? It's uh, um, it usually starts off with a random mutation, okay, as all evolution does, uh, as followed by natural selection. So it happens to be that. Um, a bacteria has this a mutation uh, that happens to make it more resistant to a particular medication, and then that bacteria will survive, and it will be more likely to pass on its, its DNA to the next generation, and the next, and the next, and the next, and then all of a sudden, you have lots of bacteria that are resistant to that drug, uh, and that's how this kind of stuff happens. So we um, used that term earlier, but um, if a drug is multi-resistant, so resistant to several different medications that are commonly used, then we'll call it something like a superbug. Um, does anybody know what we're looking at down here at the bottom? These are um, culture plates. So basically what's happened is, and this one on the, in the middle is actually a good example. You see how it's kind of, it looks like swiping back and forth, that kind of yellowish stuff? So the red is agar. It's 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 a growth it's a uh, growth medium. It's it's something that gives bacteria everything it needs to grow if you put it in the oven. Um, so what's been done is somebody's taken a swab right of a of a, a sample of something where they suspect there's bacteria, and then you wipe it back and forth across that plate, and then you put it in the oven right, and you let you let the bacteria grow, and that's what this yellow stuff is, right? It's the, it's the bacteria have multiplied and you can now see visually where they're dividing and multiplying. And that's the same deal over here in the darker spots, right? What these little white dots are, are uh, various um, medications, so antibiotics. And so if you can imagine, if an antibiotic is effective, you'll have an area around it where bacteria won't grow. Right? And so that's what you're seeing here. So in this example, which of these antibiotics is more effective? One on the left or the one on the right? The one on the left. One on the left, of course, right? Because it, there's uh, no bacteria growing within a larger area around it. Okay? So you can, you, can, you can compare different medications and select appropriately based on what kind of findings you get. What do we have here? Whatever antibiotics these are, are having no significant effect on that bacteria. So they wouldn't be effective in, in treating that uh, an infection with those bacteria. Very good. All right. Um, so there's a lot of thoughts uh, as far as how, uh, act, uh, how antibiotic resistance uh, develops, uh, especially broadly in society. Um, so here are some kind of common uh, common thoughts on, on how this uh, on how this stuff develops. Um, Overprescription of antibiotics. So um, the the best example would be um, antibiotics being prescribed for uh, non-bacterial infections. And I'm going to generalize a little bit, but this is the classic: um, angry parent brings their sick child in with a viral infection and demands medication, right? Um, very much cracking down on, on, on uh, that now because we know that it's, it causes a negative effect and can contribute to antibiotic resistance. But 
viral infections for the most part, unless it's something really, really nasty and significant, it's supportive care, right? I mean, how do you treat the flu or, or a, uh, the common cold, right? It's not comfortable, it's rest, right? It's supportive care. It's, there's medications that you can take to manage symptoms, decongestants and pain pills and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's go home, get sleep, get rest, get some food in you, and ride it out. And, and it'll be a few days and, and you'll feel better. Um, so prescribing antibiotics when they're not necessary uh, can contribute to, to antibiotic resistance. People not taking antibiotics as prescribed. So this is either um, taking the wrong antibiotics or not taking their full course. So the, the say, um, say you go in uh, to the doc, you have a bacterial infection, and say, here's your script, right? So for uh, 10 days, take these antibiotics. And on day five, you start taking them, and on day five, you feel good. And so you stop taking them. But that's not the point, right? You're gonna feel good before the, all the bacteria have been eradicated. So the ones that are left over, can divide and have the potential to become resistant to antibiotics. Um, people will save antibiotics. So um, they'll have some at home from some previous whatever, and somebody in the family gets sick and they're like, I got something for that. And you pull something out of the med cabinet and you treat them with the inappropriate antibiotic. You laugh, but it happens. Uh, so don't do that. Um, agriculture, that's a big one, okay? Um, because of uh, how farming is largely done for scale these days with factory farming and how they're crammed in together and fed the food that they're not supposed to eat, they get sick, they get infections, and they basically get pumped full of antibiotics uh, to, deal with the, uh, to deal with the consequences of, of that environment. Uh, and that cascades into um, antibiotic resistance that can occur in, in bacteria and livestock. Uh, those are, the, those are the big ones. Those are very much the big ones. Okay. Uh, what else? Okay, a couple more slides and we'll take a break. Um, and uh, development of it, and actually, you know what? Let's not worry about this. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna go too any deeper into the actual mechanism of how this works. So don't worry about that. Let's take a break. Uh, until quarter after, we'll come back and learn about uh, viruses. All right, let's go to the next category. So again, this one is uh, longer, or next longest one. Uh, viruses. Viruses, as I mentioned earlier, are not technically living, living organisms because they don't meet the criteria of uh, living organism because they're not cellular. They don't. They don't. Uh, they, they don't have a cell at all, so they have no cell membrane, they have no organelles, so they have no ribosomes, they have no uh, nucleus, they have no um, endoplasmic reticulum, they have no Golgi apparatus, they have none of that, okay? Now, that being said, we'll talk about it, of course, because they are a common cause of disease. Now, as I mentioned earlier, um, our cells and all our, all the, everything in the, in the tree of life um, the hereditary material, the genetic material, is all DNA. And we, of course, use stuff called RNA to transfer information and make proteins, and we'll talk about that in another class. Viruses can have DNA, or they can also be made up of RNA as well. So they do have nuclear material, and that's kind of the key idea, because the, um, the nuclear material of a virus is able to 
to, uh, to um, be read by the inner workings, the mechanisms of a host cell, and so it can be acted upon. So essentially, um, once a virus introduces that DNA or RNA into a host cell, um, it can essentially hijack the host cell's uh, workings, mechanisms to, to do the bidding, you know, so to speak, of the viral DNA or RNA. So viruses <coughs> have no way to replicate, divide, outside of a host cell because they have no mechanisms to do so. They can't build proteins, they can't reproduce, okay? They're not living organisms. Um, <coughs> another thing to take note, excuse me, <coughs> is that a lot of viruses can only infect uh, uh, very specific cell types because um, they, uh, they, their nature is they, they need, they're not sentient, they can't think, right? They need to be able to uh, identify specific target receptors that only exist on certain types of cells. And they use those target receptors as attachment sites to attach themselves and introduce uh, their DNA or RNA into a cell. So for example, um, the viruses that cause hepatitis, right? Hepatic means liver, so those viruses, there's vir uh, you know, hepatitis A, B, C, D, and E, and they only will affect liver cells, nothing else. Um, HIV will only, it, it will only specifically affect certain cells of the immune system called T helper cells. Lots and lots of different examples, okay? <coughs> so they are by definition small obligate parasites. Um, they, again, don't have a cell. They do have a protein coat or something called a capsid. So it's, it's a protein structure that encapsulates it and protects the DNA or RNA that they have. Um, but again, not a membrane or a cell. Um, that protein coat can look like a whole bunch of different styles and shapes. Um, so these are some artist depictions, of course, but we have circular ones and then some oblong ones and then uh, ones with all sorts of uh, proteins and antigenic markers kind of sticking out for them. Um, here's some better drawn examples. Um, this over here on the left was one of the first viruses that was ever identified. <laughs> Specifically, it's called the tobacco mosaic virus, um, and it affected tobacco plants and decimated some uh, crops. This is an adenovirus. It's kind of um, you know, polygonal shape there. Uh, this is HIV, uh, kind of circular. Uh, this is a cool one. This is called a bacteriophage. Um, it kind of looks like a lunar lander, and it acts similarly. It basically lands on a, a cell, specifically a bacterial cell, and injects its DNA into the cell. Um, so lots of different examples. They <laughs> have this hepatitis A. Okay. Um, this is a rhinovirus. What does rhino mean? Rhino means nose. Right, so this is a, a common cold, okay? A virus that uh, um, affects the epithelial cell lining of the of the nasal cavity, uh, and this is the herpes simplex virus that causes uh, uh, cold sores and, and genital sores. Um, a couple of years ago, when I originally uh, taught this class the first time, I threw, this was in the news, and so I threw this one up. Uh, anybody recognize this? Say again? Uh, Ebola. Ebola, yeah, exactly. That's the Ebola virus. Yep. And that showed this you know, picture like this on the news. It's got a very distinct shape to it, very different than one of the other ones you've seen. Good. Now, um, you already had the slides, so we couldn't update it, but probably more relevant to, to the current news would be, uh, you know, do you recognize 
this virus or what? Let's find a picture. All right, you recognize this virus here? All right, it's a coronavirus that's in the news. Now, if you haven't been following this, it's getting to be a big story uh, in the last couple of weeks. Um, do you, does anybody remember SARS? Okay, no, not old enough. Uh, SARS, so SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Um, it was an outbreak in 2003. Uh, it's caused by a coronavirus. Corona means crown, it means it's round. Um, and so that's why it's relevant to this because the current one in the news is also a coronavirus. But basically, the, uh, they, they're following very similar histories and, and developments. So the virus that it was assumed to have been, it's a respiratory infection. Um, it causes respiratory failure, um, particularly virulent, spreads really easily, kills people a lot more easily than most respiratory infections as it causes respiratory failure. Um, was originally thought to be spread from livestock to humans and then from human to human. Started in, in East Asia, particularly China. Uh, in the case of SARS in 03, it spread from China to Hong Kong to worldwide uh, on, on international flights. And there was a big outbreak in the Toronto area uh, and a bunch of people died. So um, <laughs> this is following a very similar pattern, right? Um, every time I look at this story in the last couple of days, the numbers keep climbing. The last time I checked, I think it was 400 or so confirmed cases and nine deaths or something like that. And this seems to imply that at least 17 people have died. It's been found in Washington, D.C. now. Um, if you go anywhere near an airport anytime soon, uh, there will be screening procedures set up for flights coming from anywhere near that part of the world because we don't want to, we don't want to spread it. Um, the, the, just in case you're interested in the story and haven't heard, um, this is a particularly problematic time uh, for something like this to be spreading in China. I mean, China's got a fairly dense population to begin with, uh, so it's kind of thing spreads rapidly. It also happens to be right around the Lunar New Year, which is the most popular time for people to travel in China. And so that has been predicted to significantly exacerbate the, the spread and the problem. So this article here is about uh, isolation of, of, of cities. So um, this uh, city of uh, 11 million people and kind of the epicenter of, of, the, of this uh, virus has been basically cut off. You can't leave the city. You can't take a train or a bus or a, or a plane out of it in an effort to, to contain the spread. So, yeah. Oh, yeah? Right, sure. The seafood part of it, I wasn't aware of. Um, I'm sure that's, you know, uh, we obviously want to know where it originally came from. Um, the 
the relevance to what we're going to discussion right now is what we do know, or what they do know about it, is that it is coronavirus, and and it's and it speaks to why it looks a lot like what SARS looked like, both in it's the same kind of virus, um, and it's, and it acts very very similarly. Right. Relevance to current day. Okay, uh, just to give you a sense of, of uh, scale here, right? Um, these things are not cells, right? And they're, as such, quite a bit smaller than cells. Um, if this is a red blood cell over here, um, bacterial cells, right, a bit smaller. And then our viruses, we get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, this is an interesting example here. Uh, these are ribosomes, right? So these are, these are things that you'll find inside of uh, other bigger cells. And there are viruses that are like the polio virus is a very small virus. It's on the order of magnitude of similar size. So they can be very, very small. <coughs> so I'm kind of referring to this, but let's hash it out. Um, how viruses work, how they replicate. They attach themselves to the host cell. They are obligate parasites, which means they have to use host cells to replicate. So they introduce their genetic material, whether that's DNA or RNA. So it takes control of the cell. That's maybe a little bit dramatic, but basically what it does is it incorporates the DNA or RNA into the host cell's genetic material so that um, essentially it will start ha um, using the mechanisms, the ribosomes and the, you know, the, the building blocks inside the host cell to build its own proteins and effectively create new copies of the virus. Uh, and then they have to get out somehow to spread, and so they'll either bud out, so they'll kind of push their way, I'm not sure, yeah, picture here. They either kind of push their way out of the cell and be released into the local environment where they can, again, uh, get on to the next host cell, or uh, alternatively, they, the, they will either, they'll kill the host cell, it'll overwhelm it, it'll die, it'll break open, and all these new viruses uh, and components will be released into the environment. Okay, <laughs> so there are there are also that's an active viral infection. There are also examples of latent viral infections. So it usually starts like an active infection. So they do that kind of replication process, creation of new viruses, and then the difference is in this kind of infection, rather than just dying off, um, the some of the virus remains uh, as a part of the the host cell, and that um, that the fact that it remains means that it could. Uh, in theory, become reactivated later on, maybe a bunch of times. And there's some good examples of viruses that do this. One of the well, most well-known ones is herpes virus. So the virus that causes uh, cold sores in around the mouth, I think one of you is going to get this as a, as a topic for, for the assignment too, by the way. Um, the, it will remain dormant in, uh, um, in nerve cells that supply that, that, that part of the, of the tissue. Uh, and they can become reactivated uh, and essentially become a, a, an active infection again and create the lesion and it creates the characteristic uh, herpes lesion and it goes through its course and then it subsides and it heals uh, but it remains dormant in those in the host cells again it can happen over and over and over and it tends to do so when the host's immune system is somewhat compromised so people that get recurrent herpes infections, it often will happen when the person is otherwise sick or tired or, uh, or, or immune compromised for some other reason and their body is not able to sufficiently tamp down the activity of that, of that virus. Go ahead. Uh, stress counts as immune system suppressant 
Absolutely. Sure does. <clears throat> okay, so some examples, things you might see. Um, HIV, right, human immunodeficiency virus. Um, it affects what are called CD4 cells. Those are T helper cells of the immune system. Uh, so basically, the, it has a very long latent period. So um, you become infected with HIV. It takes a very, very long time for it to, to increase in significant numbers in the body, in the blood. Uh, but then at some point, it starts, it starts impairing the function, killing off uh, these particular immune cells. And so it ends up impairing that individual's immune system and making them significantly uh, exposed to all sorts of other infections. And that's, that's when you call it AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Um, rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, RSV, respiratory syncytial viruses, all sorts of viruses. There's a whole family of viruses, hundreds of them. Um, it's so rhinovirus, like I said, is, um, means the nose. So it's estimated that there are several hundred viruses that can cause the common cold. All right. So, which means that you can have the lucky fortune of getting several hundred different colds. Okay, influenza. Um, let's talk about this one briefly. All right, influenza. There's various subtypes. There's A, B, and C. The most typical type that we run into that when you hear about seasonal flu uh, is influenza A. It is a viral infection. Um, what are the common signs of influenza? What do you think? Flu. What do you think? What do you, what do you feel? What does that person experience? How do you know I have the flu? Clogged sinuses. Okay, sure. So sinus stuff, congestion. Influenza is a respiratory infection. So upper respiratory tract, so you get sinuses involved, but the predominant thing, uh, the predominant sign is, uh, is um, fever, aches, right? Body aches. So pain all over. Chills. Um, cough, it's a respiratory infection. And the common misconception is that the flu presents with vomiting, which is not true. Right? Influenza is a respiratory infection. So it can, in young kids, and in very rare cases, present with vomiting, but in most cases it does not. Um, so if somebody you know, misses work one day and they come in like, oh, I had the 24-hour flu, puke my guts out. Alright, well, I feel bad for you. I'm sure that was terrible, but it wasn't the flu. It was some kind of you know, gastrointestinal virus or, or bacteria or whatever uh, sucks, but influenza doesn't do that. Anyway, um, herpes, right? we just talked about that. There's a few different variants of that. Um, uh, herpes simplex 1, which is uh, create, uh, gives uh, cold sore lesions in the mouth. Uh, herpes simplex 2, which uh, is the genital version. They can be swapped back and forth uh, depending on you know, contact. Um, yes, a common one, human papillomavirus, HPV, um, that causes warts. Um, and there are uh, at least 100 different strains of HPV uh, that are known. Uh, some, cause, um, uh, some cause warts that are superficial, right? uh, like planters wart or plantar warts or you know, other skin you know, superficial warts, genital warts, things like that. Um, some don't really do much of anything substantial. Um, the relevance, of course, is that um, a handful of those strains uh, have been linked to um, other more significant disorders, and specifically cervical cancer. Uh, so there are four strains that, uh, that are relevant that are commonly um, immunized against um, when you get the HPV vaccine. Two of them are responsible for the most, uh, they're the most common causes of genital warts, and the other two 
are the most common causes of acquired cervical cancer. Um, so that was kind of the, the you know, important uh, vaccination to have been developed. Um, the new version, as I understand it, not only protects against those four strains, but an additional five. So I believe it's, it's nine strains in total. Yeah? Is Plantusport one of the original four? No. No. Not that I know of. No, it's. it's um, I mean, plantar wart is pretty innocuous. Like it's, in the grand scheme, it's not linked to any other real significant problems. Um, it. Uh, I, I, the numbers. I'm gonna. I'm gonna mangle it if I try to guess. But I, I believe. I think. I think it was four, eleven, sixteen, and eighteen. I could be off a little bit on that, but uh, but yeah, there's certain strains that are that are protected against. Okay, hepatitis said earlier. Um, hepatitis uh, viruses specifically infects uh, affects the liver. Um, there to varying degrees. There's hepatitis A, B, C, D, and E. The most well known ones are A, B, and C. There's a lot of significant differences between those strains um, that you may learn about at a different time. So I won't go into detail today. Uh, rotavirus. Rotavirus uh, typically affects the GI tract, so it gets into the gut, causes. Um, causes you know, significant vomiting and diarrhea, and ultimately dehydration and malnutrition. Um, uh, it can be particularly problematic in children um, if, they're, if they become severely dehydrated. Um, you may have heard of this one. People just call it mono, right? But mononucleosis is caused by the Epstein-Barr virus. Um, so that's something you may have heard of in the past. That's about it. Again, I'm not going to ask you real specifics about the different viruses. just wanted you to be accustomed to the kinds of things that, uh, that we're talking about. And almost done. Um, let's talk about fungi. So fungi are entirely again, entirely different class of living organisms. They are eukaryotic, which like our cells means they have a nucleus. Unlike our cells, um, they have cell walls. So that's similar to bacteria, although they, are, uh, they have a, dis a, a distinct chemical makeup that's their own type of, of cell wall. Uh, fungi are interesting uh, and different in, in this category, different than what we've been talking about, because so far we've been talking about basically single-celled organisms in bacteria, right? Uh, fungi can be single-celled. For example, yeast are single-celled fungal organisms, uh, and we'll, we'll see an example of that. Um, but the majority of them are multicellular, which means they're, um, they're a little bit more complex organisms. Um, and uh, relatively speaking, a very small minority of fungi are pathogenic. I mean, there are many, 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 many types of fungi um, that, uh, you know, in our environment. Um, everything from, again, single-celled yeasts to, you know, enormous multicellular fungi. Um, and if you know anything about, about uh, fungi, they can develop and grow into these huge underground complexes that can span for enormous regions and cover huge areas. Um, lots of them that we can eat and that are perfectly healthy for us. Uh, there's a bunch of them that can kill us, that are, that are poisonous. There's a huge variety. Um, let's look at this again. So uh, fungi, again, um, quite common in soil, um, often found with plants. They can, they can have um, symbiotic relationships with plants in certain instances, uh, found in the air, in the water. Um, they're super important, again, as part of our uh, nutrient cycling in the environment for decomposition. Um, and for the most part, there are, there are, some, there are some exceptions to this, but, but largely 
uh, fungi don't cause real significant infection in humans, uh, with very few exceptions. Uh, and the big exception to that is if somebody is immunocompromised. If somebody is immunocompromised, their immune system is not functioning properly, they can be uh, vulnerable to, to fungal infection and it can be really significant. So there can be things like fungal pneumonia uh, that you almost never see unless somebody is otherwise immunocompromised. And at that point, it can be, it can be quite dangerous. Um, so to that end, um, a lot of fungal infections are opportunistic and the vast majority of fungal infections that we actually see are superficial, right? So we get on the skin right? and on membranes. So um, to that end, the way that you typically treat most fungal infections in humans is topicals. So basically uh, creams or antifungal creams. Uh, we'll, we'll look at some examples and you'll see some pictures and we'll add some, some stuff to your notes here in a second. Um, but the majority of those are going to be uh, treated topically. You don't, uh, and, and to be fair, sometimes they can take a while to kill. Um, but you really do not want to, there are, sorry, oral antifungal medications do exist, but you don't treat your run-of-the-mill superficial uh, um, fungal infections with them, um, primarily because oral antifungal medications are quite harsh to humans. There are some nasty side effects that, are, that occur with them, and you have, basically have to be under constant medical supervision uh, to, uh, uh, if you're taking an oral antifungal. So you reserved exclusively for um, if somebody is immunocompromised or has a real significant rarer infection. So you don't take those for the run-of-the-mill fungal infections. All right, so um, let's talk about a few. Um, histoplasmosis is one of the ones that can become uh, problematic and can actually cause um, neurological uh, dysfunction, um, but it's in the grand scheme fairly rare. Uh, let's talk about the other ones because they are a lot more common. Um, you've probably heard of this by a different name. Okay, Candida, Candida albicans is the full name. Alba means white. Um, this, is the, this is a yeast, so it's a single-celled fungal organism, uh, and it's the cause of thrush. All right, has anybody heard of thrush? Okay, so this is thrush, right, over on the right. And quite frankly, that's a pretty mild version of thrush, so let's find a better one. That's a better one, okay? So thrush is basically this, um, this spread uh, and multiplication of, of the yeast in, the, in either the oral cavity or the vaginal canal uh, in a female. So um, it creates this kind of thick, white, almost like cheesy kind of consistency uh, exudate stuff that, uh, that's, that uh, accumulates on the tongue and then on the inside of the mouth. Okay, so the interesting part about thrush is that um, candida, the yeast, is part of our normal flora. Okay, I hesitate, I almost said bacterial there, because we think of flora, we think of most often bacteria, but we have fungal organisms in our normal flora as well. So this is usually in your mouth, but it doesn't do this because in most cases, there's lots of bacteria around too, and they're competing for space and resources, and it, you don't get this significant expansion. Who gets thrush? 
Well, the most typical, I mean, people that have underdeveloped immune systems, uh, babies get thrush, for example. Um, but in kind of normal, healthy adults, the most typical person to see thrush in is someone who just finished or is taking a course of antibiotics. So you had an infection of some kind, and are antibiotics specific to pathogenic bacteria? Nope. All right, so they'll kill a whole bunch of your good bacteria as well. And so, say you take antibiotics, it wipes out a bunch of your good bacteria in places like your mouth and your gut, and all of a sudden, there's lots of room for this fungus, which is unaffected by antibiotic, because it's not a bacterium, to start multiplying. Yeah? Uh, can thrush be located on other parts of the body? Uh, by definition, uh, no. So, so it's, it's basically, I, I believe, because uh, it happens in breastfeeding babies, and I think you can find it based on the nipples of the, of the mother because of that, but for, by definition, it's basically it's the mouth or uh, the vagina. Okay, so again, that's your typical population that you see thrush in. Um, I have to double check, but I think one of you probably has thrush for uh, for an assignment too as well. Um, <clears throat> so other fungal infections. Okay, um, there's one on your slide. I'm going to have you add a few more. So make sure that what's on the board gets copied down. When you see the word uh, tinea, that means it's a fungal infection. <laughs> and then we name them <coughs> based on the part of the body that's affected. So here on the slide, you have tinea pettis. All right? Tinea pettis. Pettis means foot. So tinea pettis is athlete's foot. All right, so that's tinea pettis there. So it's this kind of redness, right? Dryness, cracking, usually on or around, and often between the toes. Right? Where do you where is where is typically blame? Like where's where do you usually get this? Are the usual suspects? Where do you pick up athlete's foot? Yep, yep, most common uh, suspect there. Uh, so locker rooms, right? Moist places that don't, maybe don't get cleaned properly. People walk barefoot, so you know, change rooms and showers and pools and places like that. That's why you bring flip-flops with you. Uh, next, uh, what else? We have, actually there's a picture on your slides, oops, here, that. Ringworm, okay? Uh, that is... Tinea corporis. Corp means body. Okay, I'll find you a better picture here. So don't be confused by the name, okay? So this is called ringworm. Nothing to do with a worm, okay? Not at all. Uh, this is uh, a fungal infection, all right? Okay. Few good examples there. Next up <coughs> would be, excuse me, tinea capitis. Anybody know what capitis means? Uh, Perfect. Good. So this is called ringworm of the scalp. All right, and it often looks something like this. 
It can be. It can look. This one kind of looks more like your kind of your typical, more typical ringworm, right? Similar to what's on the body. It can look kind of this scaly white uh, as well. But that's all ringworm of the scalp. Again, nothing to do with a worm. Fungus. <coughs> Excuse me. Next is tinea. Crurus. Uh, C R U R I S. Anybody want to take a stab at that? Just, I'm going to hide this for a second pull, uh, pull something up. Where else can you get fungal infections? Okay. Yeah. Absolutely correct. All right, that is uh, jock itch. Okay, jock itch, tinea cruris. Actually, more common than people think. All right, <coughs> now people think that people get this kind of thing, and they think it is a skin irritation. Right, it's just like it's it's I don't know, it's irritated because it's got rubbed or whatever. Um, this is a fungal infection. And the last one. Is this would be a harder one to guess? Tinea unguium. Props if you know what that is. <coughs> Any guesses? There have been commercials about this this last one on TV because people don't realize it's a fungal infection and trying to create some awareness. Else. Okay, <clears throat> so it looks like this. I mean, there's all sorts of the spectrum of how badly they can be affected. A relatively uh, mild one there. All right, like so. Or let's get a better one. Or a worse one, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Okay, so as you see, it can kind of it gets another nails, uh, and it makes it it, it, uh, it creates this real thickening, cracking, uh, um, warping, yellowing of the of the nails. Um, it's commonly thought that this is people think that this is just what happens when you get old. Right? It's just old person nails, and then to be fair. It's more likely to happen as you get older, but it's a fungal infection, which means, by the way, that it's treatable. Now, I'll admit that of these, that's probably the hardest one to treat, and sometimes it doesn't even fully go away until the nail gets removed, but, uh, and it can take a while, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's a fungal infection. So you pull something up real quick here. You might recognize this commercial now. Oh, it's an infection. We need a prescription. 
Male fungus should be taken seriously. At the first signs, show it to your doctor and ask about prescription treatments that can be applied to the nail. Yeah, that, that one's been around for a couple of years. Uh, there is a new one. I, I think it's a new, a new commercial. I couldn't find it, but uh, I saw it a couple weeks ago. Anyway, <clears throat> so those are all fungal infections. Any questions with any of those? That's candida. Again, that's uh, a milder form of uh, thrush there. Any questions about fungus? All right. Last one, <laughs> protozoa. So protozoa are, again, an entirely different family of, of, uh, of living organisms. They have some common elements to them. Uh, they're all unicellular, so they're single-celled organisms, like bacteria. Unlike bacteria, they are eukaryotic, which means they have a nucleus. Unlike bacteria, they have uh, no cell wall. Okay? What they do often have is a flagella, a tail, to move around. Uh, which speaks to, I mean, they're, 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 usually, um, you know, they're, they're usually found in, in water, so they easily move around. Um, they can be on their own, uh, but often they are parasites, as in they're small, and they have to get into another host cell to infect it. And, quite, and honestly, most of the, the disease-causing ones, the pathogenic ones, are of the parasitic variety. So, um, some examples you might have heard. We actually talked about this one earlier, right? Malaria. So, malaria, um, we talked about uh, the vector, right? We, what's, the, what's the vector for malaria? How, how it's transmitted? Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, most often, good. But the cause, uh, the causative agent is a protozoa. Okay? Uh, anybody ever heard of trichomoniasis? Not a lot of STIs today. That is a sexually transmitted infection, uh, most typical in females, uh, and it's, uh, it has a unique aspect to it where it generally has, creates with infection this characteristic fishy odor. Uh, and then the last one is amoebic dysentery. So an amoeba is a single-celled organism. Does anybody know what dysentery is? Okay. Um, has anybody ever seen? Does anybody remember the, the? Does anybody remember Oregon Trail? Has anybody ever seen this meme? Never. God, you're young. Okay. Uh, so uh, this is from an old, uh, an old, old, obviously, old video game. Uh, anyway, it's uh, um, it's kind of. Is had a resurgence in this meme it has at least. Anyway, um, so you've died of dysentery. This is one of the ways that you can die in that game. Now, it makes it even f kind of funny because when you realize that dysentery means violent, bloody diarrhea, um, then it makes it a little bit more, uh, a little more graphic, right? Um, so this is uh, essentially, um, this still exists, although it was more prevalent in, you know, t uh, you know earlier times when there was not there's inadequate sanitation and clean water for drinking and stuff. Uh, mostly who gets amoebic dysentery now are hikers and campers and people that uh, are out in the woods and don't purify the water properly before they drink it. You've got these live protozoa in this, they get into your guts, and they cause real significant GI problems. And you can die from it. Um, it's not pretty. Um, you ultimately die of dehydration. Okay, that's it for today. Does anybody have any questions? We'll leave it on that note. All right, it's a nice visual for you. Um, so remember that uh, everything from the, today's lecture 
is not on next week's test. It's only on the first two units that we covered already, intro and chemistry. Uh, and that's it. I will see you next week.